Hi, I'm Pat Kohanek. Uh, I'm the uh, Grenvik Professor of Critical Care at the University of Pittsburgh and lead author of the guidelines for the management of severe traumatic brain injury in children. In today's presentation, we'll talk about the three exciting new guidelines documents, the full guidelines, the executive summary, and the new algorithm articles that are published in the March issue of Pediatric Critical Care. This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome. This is World Shared Practice Forum. My name's Robert Tasker. I'm the Director of Neurocritical Care, and today I have Dr. Pat Kahanek with me, who is the R.K. Grenvik Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also the Director of uh, Research at the Safar Institute, and most importantly, you'll all know him as the Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. And in 2017, he was the Thomson Reuter Science Watch Most Prolific Writer with Most Citations in the Field of Traumatic Brain Injury Research. Today, Pat is here to talk to us about the new third edition update for the Brain Trauma Foundation Guidelines in Traumatic Brain Injury Management in Children. So, Pat, I, I'd just like to ask you, how did all of this come about? It, it, it's a huge organizational uh, achievement, but how did it start and how did you get here? It's a great question, and thanks for the kind introduction. The, the, uh, the guidelines have been a process that, as you know now with the third edition, uh, are one that brings together a, a really multidisciplinary group of people. Uh, not only uh, intensivists and uh, neurosurgeons, emergency medicine, anesthesia, and neuro, uh, child neurology, uh, etc., uh, but also uh, evidence-based medicine experts and, uh, and uh, obviously all the people required to do all the publishing. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a process that was, uh, with, uh, many people may not know that um, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, this was tried and failed uh, initially uh, by by other groups, and uh, uh, in large part, uh, Nancy Carney and the Organ Health Sciences Group uh, uh, with the Brain Trauma Foundation uh, uh, kind of assembled uh, a group of people uh, with the first edition of the guidelines that were able to finally take it to the finish line. And, uh, and now the third edition has really uh, come together, and although it's a, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking, it's so much easier than it was <laughs> in the beginning. And beyond the actual people whose names you see on the, uh, the masthead of the documents, there, there are other people. Hector Wong, for instance, served as the, uh, the guest editor uh, uh, to, uh, uh, in essence, address any potential conflicts. And, and he brought on reviewers to review. And so the, there's a huge cast. But as I mentioned, I think it was a, a lot easier this time than it was uh, particularly the first time. Thank you. So why have we got three documents this time? How, how, talk uh, us through that. It, I, I think it's really great, first of all. That's my initial reaction, the fact that we have three documents. Um, in fact, if you look back at the greatest critique of the last edition of the guidelines was that there wasn't a, a bedside handbook, an algorithm type of document. And I think that if you look back at the guidelines, we have, we have three documents now. You can see that we have the full full guidelines. And the full guidelines, of course, are essentially the Bible, but they have everything in them. 
and uh, but we then also this time in, in, in have published now rather than as a supplement in the regular pages of pediatric critical care medicine and duly published in the regular pages of the journal Neurosurgery, we have an executive summary. And that executive summary is a thumbnail of the essence of what has changed, that there are 22 recommendations and there are nine new recommendations. And, uh, and, and so that is really a distilled, easy to read version. And uh, if nothing else, I, I, you know, I suggest you read the tables of that document. And then this time, uh, we did something that we did in a very Spartan way in the first version of the guidelines, and that is try to put together a bedside caregiver's uh, document, an algorithm uh, that isn't just evidence-based, that is consensus and evidence-based. And uh, if you were to go back in, to the last guidelines, the number one, if you want to call it, complaint of people was, where's the algorithm? Where is my bedside uh, document that I can look at? Are there a couple of charts that can help guide me through? Uh, you can argue, why wasn't there one in the last document? And that's an interesting point. And the reason there wasn't one is that in that era, the Brain Trauma Foundation was in, if you want to call it, kind of a purist era. They wanted to minimize consensus. They wanted evidence. And so uh, an algorithm was, in essence, not sought out. And I think hearing all of the feedback that we really need something like this, because the evidence is better, but it's still not solid enough. And so this algorithm article, I think, is a fantastic addition. We'll talk a little bit more about it later, but it, it's, it's a really special addition. Uh, so that's why there are three documents. Really, uh, from, a, from a logistic standpoint, if you read the executive summary and use the algorithm and have the full document as kind of your backup if you need to really go into the details, I think that's the best way to navigate the three. Can I just interrupt? Yes, yes. So all of the previous um, recommendations and, and levels of evidence were relating to the outcome of death or mortality. Here now, we've introduced different outcome level, which is ICP control. Perhaps you could just talk us through that. That's a great point. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting point in that really there's been no definitive positive study that has ever shown that an intervention improves outcome in severe TBI in children. And, uh, and uh, you'll see in a minute, we've certainly had one that uh, has, has at least at a level uh, three evidence, if I remember correctly, uh, supporting against, and we've, I guess we've had a couple of those, Outcome has been such a difficult parameter, whether it's mortality or whether it's Glasgow outcome scale, to get a therapy to favorably affect that, that the next best surrogate that we have, obviously, is intracranial pressure. And so we have two different types of, 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 of targets for our recommendations. One is, is it useful for outcome, for improving overall outcome? is can we really make a recommendation in that? And the other is, can we make a recommendation to control ICP? As you know, uh, the, the, the evidence to definitively say that controlling ICP improves outcome is also just not solid enough. And so thus, the need for a dichotomy between those two. Perfect. Thank you. So perhaps you could take us through um, the evidence tables that are summarized in the executive summary, just to highlight various aspects here. Yeah, as I mentioned, there are 22 uh, uh, recommendations, and there are also some other notes within the tables, and they're, they're, they're very uh, useful. And there are nine new uh, recommendations. And so if you look through the executive summary tables, you see that, for instance, uh, the recommendations for monitoring, probably the hottest topic on the planet is ICP monitoring. And 
based on the available evidence, uh, there is a uh, recommendation for the suggestion for ICP monitoring. It's interesting that there is that recommendation given the fact that almost everything that you do is based on using ICP monitoring. And uh, we'll talk a little bit sure. later, I'm sure, about if you don't use ICP monitoring, you're, you're still stuck with, in essence, ICP-based care without the number. So there is at least a level three recommendation for that. Uh, there's also, a, once again, a recommendation for uh, advanced neuromonitoring uh, for PBO2, partial pressure of brain oxygen, and uh, with a Lycox monitor, and it's a parenchymal monitor for those aren't, who aren't familiar with it. And if you do use one, that you target uh, a level of above 10 millimeters of mercury. And that's a threshold. We'll talk a little bit about thresholds in general later. It wasn't felt that there was enough evidence to support a recommendation for use of the monitor. It's used more commonly in research institutions, et cetera. But if you do use it, that was uh, the, the threshold that was recommended. And then there are two recommendations on neuroimaging. One, that a normal CT scan does not rule out increased uh, intracranial pressure. And I think that's an important uh, recommendation. And also that routine repeat use of a CT scan is not recommended, uh, unless, of course, there's some clinical deterioration. And, uh, and all of these are level three recommendations. All of these, all of these are level three, as you can see. Uh, yes, and uh, I'll try to point out the three level twos with a little bit more uh, 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 clarity. Thank you. Uh, and then with the thresholds, there are again level three recommendations for an intracranial pressure threshold of 20 to keep it less than 20. And that is interesting because you know the latest adult guidelines had a 22 recommendation. And it's interesting also that with this recommendation, I think like cerebral perfusion pressure, there may be an age-dependent value. It might be that in an infant, 20 is, is a little high, but we just don't have the evidence to, to say more. And the same as with cerebral perfusion pressure, we had a recommendation uh, once again for a minimum of 40. Uh, but we also have a, a recommendation that 40 to 50 may be uh, a, a more practical recommendation given that uh, we don't want to breach that threshold of 40. And we also mentioned there may be age-specific thresholds, specifically for CPP, given the, the well-recognized age dependence of blood pressure and the importance of blood pressure in the CPP calculation. But once again, we can't make specific recommendations. Uh, I think one of the papers from your uh, center back in Cambridge when you were there was one of the best that came as close to giving us a shot at doing that. And uh, uh, maybe future studies will be able to pin that down a little better. So for hypertonic saline now, we do have uh, a level two recommendation for bolus administration of 3% and with specific doses and uh, uh, I think that that's a nice advance uh, in, in this guideline. I think uh, the, the paper by Steve Shine, uh, uh, I think, really helped contribute to this because it was the first time that uh, uh, an actual comparison between therapies, uh, first-tier types of therapies, whether it was hypertonic saline or fentanyl, et cetera, provided evidence uh, that the hypertonic saline not only improved ICP, but it also was the only therapy that improved CPP. And uh, that was kind of an exciting finding from that. Uh, we also continue to have level three recommendations for uh, hypertonic saline as a continuous infusion, uh, and that was in the prior guidelines. But now another new 23.4% hypertonic saline recommendation based on studies from down under, I guess you would say, really exciting to see. Uh, you, I'm sure, and maybe the audience isn't as aware, but 23% is used much more commonly in the adult world. Interestingly, that 
I think the pediatric uh, field, largely related to the work out of San Diego, brought hypertonic saline back into the uh, armamentarium with 3%, and then the adult world brought the 23% in, and now we have a 23% uh, paper in pediatrics. So have, having that in your armamentarium. Just to make clear, we couldn't find any studies in regard to mannitol. It's a really great point, and despite the history of mannitol use, uh, uh, I'm really hopeful that ADAPT will now be able, the ADAPT trial um, uh, led by Mike Bell, which just closed 1,000 patients, a comparative effectiveness trial, funded by um, NINDS, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that is going to give us some uh, insight uh, into uh, the effect of mannitol. Part of the reason we don't have evidence for mannitol is that some of the really early studies supporting its use were, uh, in essence, accepted. Yeah. And people didn't feel the need to, to replicate them, but the, the studies in that era just don't hold up to the rigor of today's type of reports. And so it's a it's a it's a bit of a conundrum, sure. and it's, it's kind of a, a kind of a bummer, I guess you would say, but uh, it doesn't mean that we don't uh, uh, recommend against mannitol as an alternative to hypertonic saline. We just don't have the evidence in the articles to to support its use. Um, the other thing with regard to the hyperosmolar therapy is that once again we have some safety recommendations showing that sustained increases at high levels, and whether you pick 160 or 170, you start to see complications. And whether it's evidence of an endotheliopathy with uh, thrombocytopenia and pulmonary complications, or whether you have thrombotic complications, uh, it starts to come in. And so you get a trade-off for use at, at those higher levels. And also, uh, we had some other new recommendations uh, this time. Uh, again, very exciting, uh, a category that I think pediatrics has also led the way in initially. Uh, we were kind of the first people to put a chapter in on sedation. We didn't have much to say, but it has, I think it really uh, stimulated some studies. And uh, the study out of Wash U showing that amidazolam and fentanyl combined in particular was associated with not an improvement in ICP when used as a bolus, uh, but actually some deleterious effects. It was somewhat of a complicated study, but there were clearly some, some signals of a deleterious effect allowing us to have a level three recommendation against routine bolusing of those agents. I think it's really important, though, to recognize that in that uh, recommendation that we are assuring that the patient, the kid, is already adequately sedated. Yeah. So this is not to tie the hands of the caregiver to not sedate or provide appropriate analgesia to kids with severe TBI, but rather, if you're already doing that, just coming in with additional boluses don't seem to produce important improvements in ICP. Although if you were to compare uh, the study from WashU, Jose Pineda's group, they saw really predominantly negative effects. In Steve Shine's study, they, we, we saw some benefit on ICP, but no benefit on CPP. I think taken together, uh, it really argued more for give boluses of hypertonic saline or other therapies uh, if you are adequately sedating. And, uh, and of course, another very important difference between the adult guidelines and the pediatric guidelines in the adult world, propofol is, yeah. is in a number of studies, been shown to be a, a very good way to provide sedation in neurocritical care of adults. But obviously, with a black box warning, it's just not on the table in pediatrics. And although we don't have a study in TBI saying we can't use it, it you could argue there's something at a higher level preventing the, the, uh, the use of it as a continuous sedation uh, approach in pediatric TBI. I also wanted to mention that we don't have a specific recommendation on neuromuscular blockade, but we 
do say that its use is up to the treating physician. And we, we deal with that a little bit more in the, in the algorithm. Yeah. We also have a number of other level three treatment uh, recommendations, cerebral spinal fluid drainage, if you're using a ventricular catheter. Seizure prophylaxis, level three also, although we didn't have evidence to say levetiracetam or uh, phenytoin or phosphenotwin were better, either was better. And then we also had a level three recommendation against prophylactic hyperventilation. However, if you have refractory intracranial hypertension now, kind of as a second tier hyperventilation, can be used, and there is a level three recommendation for it. And once again, I think that becomes a little clearer on the algorithm. It's kind of like what you use up front versus, hey, we're not winning. Now, what are the choices I have? Yeah. I guess would be the way I would put it. I think one of the greatest improvements uh, in not necessarily uh, as much related to the to the new data as much as related to the interpretation of it has come with the temperature control. And uh, we now have a level two recommendation. And now this, as you are talking about, this is with overall outcome, as was the early hyperventilation, not for ICP control, but for overall outcome, a recommendation against prophylactic hypothermia. So if a patient comes in, you just immediately cool them in kind of a neuroprotective fashion. And uh, despite how wonderful that sounds and despite many animal studies suggesting that there was some potential for that, it's just never panned out. Although we still don't have, in essence, perfect studies on that, there are some signals that during rewarming, you might run into some difficulties. And I always say hypothermia is not a pill. It's complicated. And so uh, in those studies, uh, if anything, there were some trends in some of them for deleterious effects. And so we have a level two recommendation against doing that. However, for ICP control, once again, if your first line therapies are failing, moderate hypothermia to attenuate intracranial hypertension is on the table. So it's like a differentiation between what you would do first tier and then what you would do second tier. Exactly. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a preventative strike with mild cooling is, is not recommended. Yeah. <clears throat> In fact, we recommend against it. Whereas if the conventional th first-line therapies are failing, hey, uh, this is something that is, there is evidence to say that it can control ICP. And that's a very different situation than upfront application. And similarly, uh, for refractory intracranial hypertension, we have level three recommendations once again for barbiturates and for decompressive craniectomy. And those are basically uh, the same. There was a little bit more evidence uh, supporting them, but still all at level three. I mean, perhaps it's also worth just mentioning that we did have pediatric neurosurgeons review all of the evidence on the decompressive craniectomy literature to go through that in really quite some detail as well. Oh, yes. That was something that I think in all three guidelines, we have been very, very uh, mindful to be inclusive on the team. And I think that everyone felt comfortable with every recommendation. I, I think there really was a consensus on the evidence portion. I think there was an excellent consensus even on the algorithm, but the, there was strong agreement and uh, even recognizing that some centers use decompressive craniectomy in a more prophylactic way. Uh, but I think the evidence that we can state in the guidelines are the use of it for a refractory uh, intracranial hypertension or a neurologic deterioration, et cetera. It could be that you would use it up front if you had a terrible injury with a you know, large uh, parenchymal lesion, et cetera. But it is in that context. And then the final two areas in the treatment, one is in nutrition and uh, there is a level two recommendation that once again is in the guidelines. It's a really excellent study, but it's a study on a very specific immune modulating diet. And the study was well 
conducted and thus enough to give it level two recommendation. But beyond that, for not using that diet, it doesn't help us very much because it was so specific. It's an excellent study, but it's difficult to generalize beyond it. In contrast, we now have another new recommendation to start uh, nutrition within 72 hours. That approach is even stronger evidence subsequent to the guidelines. Again, and that's for improving overall outcome. It's a level three recommendation, but uh, it did not differentiate whether you uh, uh, exactly what kind of rate of enteral nutrition or exactly what the recipe was, but I think it's still a first step forward on that. And then finally, interestingly, the recommendation on corticosteroid use moved from a level two against to a level three against. And people may not realize this, that, well, we're humans putting together these guidelines. And the backdrop upon which they are crafted changes with time. This is to me is a really interesting example that earlier on when the crash trial came out, it was a study of uh, steroids in adults yeah. with thousands of patients, negative, deleterious. It influenced the field like a hammer. And I think that that study probably was given too much weight by us in the past. And as we've looked more rigorously and said to ourselves, but where's the pediatric evidence? We have said, and maybe part of it is, well, we've gotten some better pediatric evidence for other pieces of this. So that study, even though it's a, I think a level one in the adult guidelines, it's not a pediatric study. And so we can't just simply extrapolate. And the pediatric evidence is really level three against corticosteroids. And the other thing I think that we are trying to be very mindful of is that we don't want to tie the hands of our caregivers to not be able to use steroids in the setting of, of adrenal suppression. And whether it's etomidate or whether it's prior steroid use or other problems, uh, uh, HPA axis. <coughs> sure, injury. HPA axis injury, absolutely. And uh, uh, so uh, I think in that setting, uh, we, we, we moved that from a level two to a level three. That's one of the more interesting nuances, I think. If you weren't really looking carefully at the guidelines, you wouldn't have thought that changed. But it was a, it's an interesting thing. So that's a great summary, Pat. And um, you sort of alluded to it when you mentioned that there have been other studies coming out since um, this was all written. And the question is, do we have to wait another five or six years before the next set of guidelines, or is there going to be a completely different strategy with dealing with new evidence as it comes out? It's a great idea. A living guidelines is something that has been discussed. Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, there, there is interest from the Brain Trauma Foundation of, of doing that. It's not easy, though. It takes a lot of work. And uh, I think that it probably takes a certain level of financial support, too. And so exactly whether that will come together, I don't know. I, I really don't. I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think the other question is, a living guideline kind of is so logical now. I mean, heck, no one, everyone just goes to their phone for what happened last night, you know. Uh, I think that that is, is, is certainly where it's going to go. I think it's interesting that we're almost in a, a, a scenario where the mechanics to make that happen in the transition uh, need to be worked out. And uh, I hope it does happen, uh, but I do think that uh, it, it's not a trivial undertaking to do. That's how I would describe it. I would think if we could update at least every year or two years, that would be even a step uh, that probably is going to be necessary because otherwise these become uh, out outdated pretty quickly. Thank you, Pat. That was really clear. And now... It comes to the bedside document or the algorithm. Perhaps you could just sort of 
talk us through the concept and the figures that appear there. Yeah, as I, I mentioned a little earlier, the, the in with the first guidelines, there was an algorithm. We really, in that at that uh, point in time, we felt it was really important. Uh, that initial algorithm in that first document, though, was really a synthesis of the evidence into an algorithm with a little bit of consensus. It was not, it was still a very largely evidence-driven document. Uh, as I mentioned, the Brain Trauma Foundation, uh, with the second edition, really pushed for we need pure evidence um, and uh, kind of a, almost a religious kind of approach. And uh, this time around, I think it just became so clear uh, from, from the feedback that we received that people want more than that. And so we, uh, we put together, and I'm really pleased to say the two of us together are the, the co-lead authors of this. And I, I, it's a fantastic thing. I think it's one of the best things I've ever been part of in my career uh, that, uh, that tried to really build a, a much stronger consensus layered upon the evidence uh, and address some issues that are really neglected. And it was really fun, even discussing this at the Guidelines Committee. Uh, we had great people, Mark Wainwright and Mike Bell and... and, and David yeah, Adelson. Dave Adelson and Monica Alala and Nate Selden. And, and everyone was weighing in on this. And uh, things like, you know, TBI is this multifaceted disease where you have ICP, CPP, brain tissue O2, all, all, the, all these different readouts simultaneously, and each of them is their own linear pathway, but they influence each other, and there's never any discussion of those in kind of a sterile guidelines document, or things like the tempo. Uh, I, I always chuckle because when we were talking, Mike Bell had a great comment. He said, you know, you have a guidelines and you have a level one uh, pathway and uh, you, you say, well, in one patient, they blow through this in 15 minutes. In another patient, it's like they behave and they follow it and their ICP raises over several days and you can just nicely implement the therapies. But you're stuck with the same sterile guidelines. You know, things like weaning. You can read through all the guidelines and no one ever says, well, is there anything about weaning? What do you? How do you take the therapies off? We all do it in in our own way, and we all generally take the most toxic and the last thing on as the first thing off, etc. But no one ever discusses it. You just don't find it in a document. And another point in the algorithm that I think is really important, and this became. Uh, we discussed this, and I think we were really excited when we started discussing this, and that, you know, thresholds that are generated in guidelines documents are the minimum threshold. And the classic, obviously, is a CPP of 40, and we say, man, that's low. And if you're targeting 40, you're going to be in the 30s some time period, and we're going, wow. But you're stuck with that. And so the algorithm article discusses, I think, really nicely that these thresholds are minimum targets. And whether it's a hemoglobin of seven, or an ICP of 20, or a, a CPP of 40, or a brain tissue O2 of 10. Uh, heck, you can find articles that say, was well, you use 25 or 30 as the target? And, but the, the strongest evidence, the most cautious, uh, of course, is 10. And uh, you might argue, well, why not just raise those empirically? But more therapy might also get you into trouble. And so, uh, you know, running something too rich, I mean, look at with fluid overload now. Uh, it used to be, I always used to say, pour it like you don't own it. But now we are all saying, hey, there is a price to pay for these things that we do in the ICU. And, uh, and so the concept of, of a minimum threshold is one that we discuss in the algorithm. We would like now to turn to the audience to ask a question.
When you respond, please leave your city and country. What did you find most helpful about the three new guidelines documents? I think we're really pleased that it's nice visually to look at. Uh, you see the linear pathways. You see the potential interaction. The first tier algorithm, which uh, uh, is, I think, a really nice graphical uh, display, builds on the baseline care. And these kind of things, if you look back at the prior guidelines, in the introductory article were a, kind of a brief discussion, but they weren't really laid out for the bedside caregiver. And I think this time, for the first time, we've really laid them out and said, here's a straw man to utilize. And going back to Mike Bell's analogy, you might have a patient that blows through this in a few hours. And then you might have another patient that never progresses to second-tier therapy, that, that some approach to this, uh, some, some utilization of this uh, allows you to do all of your management. Um, I think one of the other things about this that I always personally felt we fell short in the prior guidelines is herniation is so devastating, it's just so important, and yet there are no studies on it. Even in the adult side, there are only a few studies on herniation. It's really interesting if you look at those adult studies. And you mean what you would do in an emergency? That's right. Uh, and, and not only what you would do, but what are the consequences? Yes. And it's not like, well, we're going to randomize to A or B yes. in herniation. That's a little tricky. And not to say that it couldn't be done to try to improve what our best approach is on that. But I think one of the things, if you look at some of the, I think there's about three adult studies on, on herniation, the, the interesting thing is that there's a pretty decent number of patients that herniation can be reversed. Yeah. We think of it as is so devastating, and rightfully so, but it's not always. And that the early signs and symptoms in some patients can be reversed, and, and, it's, and it may be 40 or 50 percent. And so that's really important. All the more reason to have a recipe. And so we have what I call the herniation pathway, and it has a nice backdrop on, well, what are the signs and symptoms? Because it varies from patient to patient, obviously. And then how do you manage it? And that is the setting that hyperventilation, titrating to pupillary, reversal of yeah. pupillary dilation is indicated, and on an FiO2 of one, and then bolus mannitol or hypertonic saline. Uh, it's interesting in the adult studies, it's usually 23.4% yes. saline, but I think in pediatrics, people still, the guidelines committee felt that in this setting, more people are comfortable with mannitol, and what we didn't want to do was to try to introduce something new in that crisis setting that people are trying to find something that they're not prepared for. Maybe that will ultimately evolve, but that wasn't the goal of this. And then, of course, if you have an EVD in place to open it and make sure you're maximally draining CSF. And, um, and, and then get to imaging image surgery, CT, of course. And so having that kind of crystallized on there, uh, if it saved one or two kids, it was yeah. a great addition to these. And, uh, and, and then, as I mentioned, within this, we have a nice discussion about an ICP pathway and how do you progress down it and uh, the CPP pathway, what do you do to add to this, and then the brain tissue O2 pathway. And one of the uh, things that's always brought up, well, how does one influence another? And the, the classic example, I think, that is really a nice one is that if you were in a unit and you're monitoring all three of these, and you have a situation where the ICP is under control and the CPP is under control and your ICP say is 16 mm -hmm. and uh, you're on osmolar therapy and it's taken barbiturates to get to that. But now you have a patient whose brain tissue O2 levels are low, say they're seven or eight. 
and you're saying, well, our ICP is under control, but our brain tissue O2 is inadequate, should we just be satisfied with that? A, a classic example is to say, well, let's let the PCO2 rise a little bit, or let's raise our blood pressure a little bit. Hemoglobin. Transfuse, yeah. yes. Do an intervention that will maybe improve brain tissue O2. So now all your targets are adequately addressed, even, and, even and recognizing we don't know exactly sure. what the best value. But the range of targets for each of these and references to the individual protocols that people use are all in the algorithm paper as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then, of course, once you get beyond this, uh, you, of course, have refractory intracranial hypertension and uh, another tier. Uh, and you could argue, well, is it artificial to really consider this a tier, et cetera? I think maybe in the past we might have thought to some extent that's the case, but now I think you can see from the new guidelines by having level two evidence for hyperosmolar therapy kind of open the door to really more definitively say, yes, that's level two evidence and that's a therapy that in general, until you get to high levels of sodium is probably reasonably safe. And now you get to therapies that are, are much more uh, risky. And so if you're not controlling ICP with that first tier of therapies, you have choices. And as I mentioned, barbiturates, moderate hypothermia, hyperventilation, and pushing osms. Uh, I like the way this is presented now because it's not linear. We don't know what order to do these things. You know, would you do barbiturates and then hypothermia or hypothermia, then barbiturates or the hyperventilation? Have you got a comment about that? Yeah, that's a really great point. We not only don't know what order that this should be first and this should be second, and but we also don't know because commonly you need more than one of these. We all have tons of patients where, hey, we've had to go to barbiturates and push a hyperosmolar therapy to 165 or whatever, and uh, or or push ventilation or hey we have to cool there there are, so what combination not only what order but but is there a combination and I think two things come to mind uh, with that with me and that is that that combinations are common and we don't know which one's better but also. It may be that either individual use or combination use, the efficacy depends on the center. Because I think that these kind of advanced therapies are, they take skill. They really do. They, uh, you start barbiturates, you better be ready to support hemodynamics. And uh, I remember Brad Peterson from San Diego saying, I would never allow the blood pressure to be low if I started a barbiturate uh, infusion. With that kind of mindset that you don't start it and wait for trouble, you are all over it. You've got the presser essentially teed up to the patient at the time you start it. And, and there may be some centers that are great at decompression and they want to go to decompression at that point. Obviously, the evidence even on the adult side, pretty equivocal on that also. But um, so I do think the this may vary depending on the center. And I think the other thing is that this whole guidelines, the backdrop of it is as if we are dealing with one disease. Mm -hmm. And we know now that it's very likely that the phenotypes of TBI are going to be important. And it may be that, particularly for something like second-tier therapies, that one type of second-tier therapy is way more effective, say, if you have someone with diffuse axonal injury and diffuse swelling, that may be very different than someone who had a big subdural and has a focal lesion or a big contusion. And so ultimately, this will evolve to something much more elegant. We would like to turn again to our audience to ask a question. When you respond, please leave your city and country location. 
what do you think might be changed to improve the value of future guidelines to caregivers? And the other component of this, if we're going to go to these advanced therapies in the second tier, we've also got a section on advanced neuromonitoring. And there wasn't a great deal of evidence in the main document to support these, you know, like EEG, transcranial Doppler, so-called PRX, etc. So have you got a comment about that component? If, if you look carefully at the algorithm uh, document, we do make some comments, even in the first tier, to say that, for instance, if you use neuromuscular blockade, we strongly suggest using continuous EEG. And, um, and obviously, once you start to get into these more uh, second-tier uh, therapies, advanced monitoring, I think, can be very helpful. As you say, we don't really have great evidence. I'm one of the people that believes that it's nice to have advanced monitoring as much as you can uh, from the word go, recognizing that you don't overreact to any one monitor. I really think that as with therapies, I'm a believer in a little of a lot of therapies rather than a lot of one therapy. That's where I've seen people get into trouble is almost being a zealot about one approach and pushing it, really. And I think that we see in all of these therapies that their toxicities are dose-dependent. And so if you can use a little of a lot of therapies, almost like an artist, uh, you can, and, and, and with, with uh, um, many advanced monitors, I think that that's one of the ways that you can optimize outcome. I don't think we're there yet in a guideline or an algorithm, and I'm, I'm just saying that kind yes. of off the cuff. That's, that's a wish but, for the future. But I do think there is something to that. There's perhaps one area that I just want to pull you back on and sort of garner your thoughts on, and that's the, uh, you know, what the question of what if we haven't got invasive ICP monitoring? What do we do? I, I think that is really a burning hot question right now uh, that was really set into motion by Randy Chestnut's uh, best trip. Uh, study uh, published in the New England Journal a few years back, and uh, and then more recently, Tellen Bennett's uh, JAMA Pediatrics paper, and questioning whether this is really a, the key target that we should be uh, aiming for. And uh, I, I think it's so interesting because we're, we're really excited that we actually do have a section in the algorithm article about this question. And uh, uh, the, the real gap, though, is that if you don't use ICP monitoring, that there is no pediatric, not only data, there isn't an, even a consensus or single center description of how you should manage it. And uh, in Tellen's paper, which wasn't a study of how to do it. It was just the way some people are managing what's happening, what are the consequences, can we use statistics to try to sort this out? And uh, in, in that paper that questioned it, there was no protocol. There were some percentages of who, what percentage of people use barbiture rates and what percentage of people. So A, we, we don't really even have a document in pediatrics, but we do have Randy Chestnut in the supplement to that article in the New England Journal, if you go in there, and they, of course, titrated. Their... And they recruited over 12-year-olds, I think, in that study. Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, they titrated to clinical exam and imaging. And uh, I, I think that if you look at the results of that paper, there are just some truly fascinating results. One is that in many cases, the amount of therapy that was used was greater yes. than if you used ICP monitoring. And uh, it kind of makes sense that if you just have to guess at what kind of brain swelling there is, that you 
you're going to need to overshoot because if you run it too thin, then you could get into trouble. And so obviously using those metrics, exactly how often you were to scan, et cetera, um, uh, is totally unclear. But if you were to use those kind of metrics, that's you, you would use the therapies that we have developed based on ICP monitoring yes. and then just have to empirically implement them uh, and, and write your own protocol as to how you want to do it or try to uh, use the uh, Randy Chestnut protocol in a pediatric analog of it. Uh, but you would have no evidence other than the evidence uh, based on ICP. So you can't get around the ICP influence on it. I do think there's one other take-home point, though, from the, those studies, and that is I really believe that it may get back to the phenotyping that we have underutilized imaging to help us guide our, our treatment. Not so much we don't get enough, imaging, but we in general have gotten imaging to say, oh, they need to go to surgery, rather than, wow, there's still a lot of swelling there. This brain looks tight. Uh, it's almost like getting a compliance readout instead of just an ICP readout and saying, hey, uh, we're going to need therapy for a longer period of time. And, and I don't think we've, we've really, we haven't in any way uh, skim the surface even of how we might use imaging. And if we could get bedside MR, for instance, and perfusion MR and things like that, I think it could really um, help influence uh, our, our care. So I don't have an answer for the no ICP other than if, you want, if, if that is the approach, you need to craft a protocol based on the chestnut study and, and and we really need the results of those kind of things if that is what you're doing to be published. Uh, and uh, in, remarkably, it seems like the number of centers that don't use ICP monitoring or use them in selected patients is pretty substantial. And uh, uh, the other thing that I would say about that is the ADAPT trial isn't going to provide us any information about that because obviously in that trial, ICP monitoring was an entry criteria. So that still will be a gap, even if ADAPT gives us some, some clues as to how to better manage. I'm hoping that based on ADAPT and the other studies that we actually uh, become better at utilizing and, and treating ICP and that it will lead to better outcomes rather than trying to take a step back and fly blind, I guess would be the way I would put it. Thank you very much, Pat. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and, and talk about the guidelines documents. It's, it's a huge and massive achievement. Thank you. Thank you, and it's in the March <laughs> issue of PCCM. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.